Hello, and welcome to another Industry Careers for PhDs podcast brought to you by Cheeky Scientist. I'm your host, Isaiah Henkel, and today we will be talking to Karen Deek about careers in patent law. If you're interested in listening to the full version of this interview, go to cheekyscientist.com backslash association uh, and learn how you can become an associate and get access to all of our job search training materials specifically for PhDs transitioning into industry as well as access to our private networking group. Um, if you'd like these highlights delivered to your inbox when they are released to the public, go to cheekyscientist.com and subscribe under where it says start here. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Uh, so we're very excited today to be talking with Karen. Um, she, she earned her PhD in genetics from the University of Chicago um, and then joined the patent prosecution group of Sonena Shen, Math, and Rosenthal. I'm not sure if I said that first name right, but she joined this law firm um, as a patent scientist, uh, passed the patent bar, and became a patent agent. Her practice included work with all stages of the, the patent life cycle for biotech clients and included work on medical diagnostic tests, agricultural products, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, and industrial products. Um, Dr. Deke performed patentability, due diligence, and freedom to operate, um, operate analysis and actively participated in the drafting and prosecution of both U.S. and international patent applications. So extensive experience here. Um, she's been at the University of Notre Dame since 2011, uh, where she was recruited to become the inaugural um, director of the MS in patent law. Uh, it is, it's a one-year program designed to prepare students for successful practice as patent agents. She's the perfect person to talk to if you're interested in getting a patent law. She has a PhD. She transitioned into this field very successfully, and we're going to dive deep into what it takes to transition into the field yourself, whether or not you need a law degree or, or certifications to get into the field. Hint, you don't, and um, what the career trajectory for this field looks like. So we're going to jump in with Karen now. Karen, thank you for making time to be with us. Sure, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, so you know, you've you've, you've done so much, and you've been so active. I know it. it uh, you're you're also an informal consultant at, at Notre Dame at the Office of Technology Transfer, which is really really exciting for for us because we have a lot of people interested in going into this industry in particular. Um, so I guess you've you've transver you know transversed a lot of different borders. Uh, you've You've had a, a flourishing career, you came, and you came from uh, getting a PhD in genetics, so you're able to relate to you know all the PhDs we have listening. Uh, to start, maybe you can just describe a little bit of what the life of a patent agent looks like, because we have a lot of people who are interested in, in patent law and things related to it, but uh, most of us don't understand exactly what that entails. Sure, and I think actually it probably would be best if I started with telling you what a patent agent even is, what that title means. Yes. Um, so you may have heard of a patent attorney. That would be someone who's an attorney who has also uh, is also allowed to help people get patents. A patent agent is not an attorney, but maybe, for instance, someone like myself who has a PhD or an advanced degree or even just a general background in the science or technological field who has taken the patent office's bar exam and can represent clients. So it's a distinction between I am not an attorney, I am a patent agent. I can't do all the other attorney stuff like write wills and go to traffic court and all that stuff. That would drive me up the wall anyway. But I can still do the interesting stuff, you know, and actually help people with their technological problems and, and help them get patents for their inventions, which are technologically based. 
Perfect. So a day in the life then is, is very much like, is very similar between a patent attorney and a patent agent, I would say. Um, at a large firm, you're, you're working with clients, you're helping clients solve problems. And, you know, either for a patent attorney or an agent, it's very much focused on they need a patent or they think they want a patent and helping them figure out if they do and if so, how to go about doing that. No, thanks. Yeah, and that's that's one thing we always like to ask. Okay, so you described some of the differences um, between patent agent and patent attorney. What? But what does it, I mean, very, very just super practically, because we're talking to, you know, PhDs would like to break down everything, uh, you know, versus, I mean, versus academia, like what does your, your daily life look like? I mean, you, you know, you get up going to an office, you're, uh, you're spending most of your day writing. Maybe you can kind of compare and contrast it or just talk about uh, very practically uh, what, what your days look like, or, or I guess yeah, an average like, day. Yeah. Well, there, you know, as with most jobs, there's no such thing as an average day, but one thing that's very different from a, a life in the lab is that I'm not doing experiments anymore. Um, my own career in my PhD, I did so much PCR, and I'm very happy never to have to do that again. Um, I, I'm not going to ever touch a pipette man, which is just fine with me. Um, but I still do think about kind of capital S science. So I'm not doing the you know the experiments in triplicate. Like I'm not doing that anymore. But I see the mm. stuff now that works. This this whole set of experiments has worked, and there's a story and an interesting result that can actually be used by somebody. And so that's kind of where someone in this role steps in. And either as a patent attorney or agent, you know, you have kind of several buckets, you know, standard things that you do, although in what order and how often you're doing each of them is kind of very person to person. Um, one of those things is working with inventors. So somebody has gotten their experiments to work and has a cool result and an interesting idea. So you're going to talk to the inventor about what they have done and actually get to learn some science. I mean, in some sense, this job is having industry experts or academic superstars teach you about what they do, just mm. you, not a whole classroom, and not like fundamental science, but here is my newest, coolest thing. I'm going to tell you everything about it. How can you beat that, right? Learning from mm. the expert on whatever thing every day. No, that's great. So you work, so it's a lot of one-on-one -on -one work. In a that role, yes. Yeah. Okay. Then once you kind of meet with the inventor, your next step is probably going to be to do a patentability search. That is a real word. Um, and <laughs> that is when you actually look through all the literature, both uh, the you know the PubMed and Medline stuff, as well as all the patents from everywhere around the world to figure out whether what they have done is actually completely new or whether they just didn't find the right thing. So, for instance, I know plenty of cases in which people, there was never, for instance, a chemical that was synthesized never published in a journal, like a, a scientific journal, but it had been patented for 40 years. Wow. You can't get a patent on that just because you didn't know about it. Um, so that's kind of very important for you to know before you go into the process of applying for a patent. Okay, so, yeah, so maybe we could talk about it from the, the scientist's point of view. So they, ha they want to apply for a patent. They come into, mm -hmm. what do they do first? They come to you first, or how, how does the complete workflow work? Well, if you're if you're at a university, let's let's talk about that. If you're a professor at a university, usually there is a tech transfer office or a technology commercialization office or something like that on campus. And you mentioned some of your listeners would be familiar with that. So the first thing the academic researcher is going to do is go to the professionals in that office, and they're probably going to do at least a preliminary search on whatever it is that the inventor, the professor is bringing to them, is something that they might be interested in. And then from 
Okay. So from there, then it would move to either an outside law firm or to a patent attorney or agent in that office, depending on how the university is structured. Okay. To do a more thorough search and actually write a patent application for it. Okay. And that's and that would be where you come in. Well, you know, like you said in the intro, I do a little bit of consulting, if you want to call it, for sure. our tech transfer office. So even at Notre Dame, I do that sort of in-house. So you're working – so it's kind of a role where you're working with – you get to work with the – I mean, the scientists, you know, the academics, the, the people, the tech transfer, the, the attorneys themselves. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you're working with sort of a variety of people in the pipeline between – the inventor who's created the thing, the if it's going to, you know, the thing is actually going to be a product, like you're, you want to know what that product is going to be, so you're going to be working with the business people so that you can protect it appropriately for the thing that you're actually going to sell. So you get kind of a, a broader, a much higher level, broader, uh, yet not being ungranular either view of what science is. You, you sort of see it in a context that's much different than you would see it in in a lab just working on the actual experiment. No, I think that's great. Um... Uh, we, we've we've had a, for those of you listening, we've had you know other people come on, whether they're scientific editors, publishing editors, uh, you know, uh, and so seeing the other side of the science uh, is is pretty intriguing. And in this case, you're seeing the other side of of taking that science and you know getting it patented, um, you know, from a patent agent's point of view. So I think the important thing to point out here is you still get to stay very close to the science. Like you said, you still get to be pretty granular, but you also get to look at a lot of different projects and, and some really uh, cutting-edge projects, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, for me, really the, the best part of it. I don't, I don't actually have to do the work, but I get to see the cool results of the experiments that do work, mm. not just in my lab. I get to see everybody's lab, you know. I get to right. see all the stuff that I'm interested in, and everything's different and unique, and I learn different kinds of science than I ever did when I was in the middle of my PhD. Right, so every, you know, minus the pipette, basically. Uh, no, no. So this this is this is great, and I think um, I like the idea of. I mean, you you get to work with these small teams, individuals. Because we have a lot of questions on uh, of people asking, well, I want to work with a small team, or I want to work with a large team, or I like working one on one, or I want to do a variety of things. So uh, it sounds like if, if someone wants to do kind of a you know work with a variety of individuals and, and more smaller groups or individuals, at least to to start when you're working on the patents, this this would be a, a good position. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, also then there's a lot of writing, as you pointed out, and reading as well that goes into this. You know, once you've done your search, when you're trying to write the patent application, that's obviously not teamwork. That's something you're going to do, mm. one person is going to do. And then you'll work with, you know, the inventor and probably other people to make sure that it's adequate and appropriate to the technology. But there is a fair amount of, like, head, you know, head down, thinking really hard, doing lots of cool analysis of, of whatever else you found to make sure that what you're writing about and how you're describing this technology differentiates it from whatever else was already out there. Excellent. Well, that's, that's very helpful. Uh, so a lot of great insights into, you know, what being a patent agent is. So so let's say you, you transition from, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that. So how how did you transition from PhD into this role? What was there any extra certifications or degrees or studying required? How did it actually happen for you? Um, for me, there wasn't anything extra, although I think now as people are learning more about the field and there are more people who are becoming potentially interested or at least aware, law firms tend to see more resumes of people who may or may not really be interested or just kind of see if it would stick. So if you're if you're coming in without a credential, which certainly people still do, um, 
I would recommend at least having a really good story about why you think this career path rather than all the other career paths is a good fit for you. Mm. Um, you can also, shameless plug here, take a master's program like the one that I run yes. or um, sit the patent bar, which is um, you can sit just with your technological background. That's the only qualification you need to do it. Um, that is offered by the patent office um, basically every day of the year. It's one of these online tests that you can take at the Prometric Testing Center now. Um, that's a hard exam, though. So if you go into that, I would not recommend going in cold. Yeah, I would definitely recommend studying for that before you try to take it. Okay, great. Well, yeah, let's, so let's, let's break this down because I think we do, I mean, most of the people that are interested in this, they have a, just a very general understanding. So, so what you say is if you're coming without a credential, and I guess by credential you mean like a JD, right? Um, yeah, or even the patent bar itself, yeah. Okay, so if you're coming in without that, then something you can do that's helpful is, uh, first of all, explain, you know, have that story, you know, for those of you listening, we've talked about this, make sure you're telling the right story through your resumes, networking interviews. Um, but you can also take some courses. Uh, you, you, you offer uh, a master's course, which we talked about briefly at the beginning, and this is on your website, which is on the, um, the cover slide here. Um, uh, for for people who are and for PhDs and just other people who are interested in learning more about it and training for the the testing and, what, and what's the test again and maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Uh, so it's colloquially colloquially known as the patent bar exam and the name is really long. It's something like the registration for practice before the U.S. Patent Office okay. or something like that. But anyway, the patent bar. And this is the exam that either attorneys or patent agents have to take to be able to represent clients in front of the patent office. Hmm. So it is 100 questions, multiple choice, um, two 50-minute, three-hour sessions. And currently the pass rate is around 45%. So like I said, it's not an easy exam. Um, and a pass, by the way, is 70% correct. Wow. Okay. Um, but what it tests is your knowledge of the rules and regulations and laws that have to do with getting patents. So it's the certification that you would have to have at some point if you want to actually take in clients on your own and represent them to get them patents. And how much, of, for example, how much of the MS training that you do is geared towards passing this test, helping people pass this test? Um, the master's program doesn't really teach to the test per se. Okay. We teach the same material, but we teach it in terms of context, how to actually use it. So we're teaching skills rather than passing the exam. Okay, perfect. And Okay, so let's say you go this route, you, uh, you, you end up passing the exam, you, you get a, a job as, as a patent agent, and I want to dig a little bit more into that, but first, if you get that job, what does the career trajectory look like? Like, where do you go from there, from, from, from being a patent agent after a, a PhD, for example? Well, there's a lot of places you can work with in that kind of career. So the one we've mostly been talking about is at a law firm. Yes. And that was where I started as well. And that is where you're taking in outside clients. You're actually, you know, doing inventor interviews, writing patent applications, negotiating with the patent office to get those applications allowed into patents. Um, and some people, if you're at a law firm, you can be a career patent agent, and firms love that because you're smart. You have a PhD if you're listening to this podcast, apparently. And um, And for those people... You know, that is a perfectly legitimate career route and would have been the one that I took had I stayed at a firm. Um, then there are other people who will go work what I would call in-house. And that means either at a company that does R&D work or at a university in the tech transfer office, helping sort of being the next step closer to the inventor or faculty member or whoever it is who's making stuff that wants patents on it. And 
you know, sort of being the manager of the portfolio and sometimes doing the work and sometimes farming it out to outside counsel. Hmm. And then there's a whole bunch of other things that you can do with these kind of skills because it is actually a pretty rare skill set. So you could go work at a search firm where some people outsource the, the searching part that we were talking about. Or, yes. you know, there's all kinds of interesting things that go work at the U.S. Patent Office in Alexandria. Government jobs are great jobs. You get great benefits, flex time, time off like nobody's business. There's all kinds of things you can do with this skill set once you kind of get your foot in the door. Okay, so there are a variety of places you you can go and transition into uh, after you become a patent agent. But what, I don't know, from your your experience, as your point of view, maybe you can talk about the pros and cons. You did a little bit there, right? Government, you might, uh, you could benefits, a little more time off. But maybe more in terms of the law firm versus the biotech or pharma industry, what are, what are some of the, the key differences or, or similarities? Um, I'd say the, the differences are in sort of the, well, maybe in the work-life balance. So law firms are notoriously bad at, you know, you work a lot, you build, you build time, which is something that some people hate and some people don't mind so much. I never did. But you have to keep track of your time in six-minute increments at most law firms. Wow. And if you're going to find that, like you ha- and you have to, there's no getting around it because that's how the clients are charged. They're charged for your time. Wow. So if you are not going to be capable or willing to do that, then that's not going to be a great fit. Um, mm. So I think that's probably like one of the biggest differences is time and how much time you're willing to devote to your job. Now, you know, the corollary to that is you're probably paid better at a firm than you are at a company, but you're working a whole heck of a lot harder, too. Um, So, you know, pros and cons. It's certainly coming out of a PhD program. A lot of money for a few years is not necessarily a bad thing, (laughs) just in terms of catching up with (laughs) living, you know, living like a grown-up. So that may be of interest. Okay, well, you know, that, that's, that's good, and that takes me to my next question. So let's say you get out of your PhD, and you're like, look, I don't care. I will do whatever it takes to earn a little bit of money. I'm going to go to a law firm. How easy is it to go from a law firm back to, you know, let's say the tech transfer route in academia or some of these other routes you talked about, and vice versa? If you go the, the tech transfer route, um, are you able to transition back into law firms? Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about, about the, I guess, the, the kind of boundaries within the field. Yeah, I think it's a really fluid field, actually, because there are so few of us that are, you know, in the field and, and quite good at it. You can figure out where you want to be and, and pretty much find that. It's sort of, it's apocryphal in the field, but it's not untrue. It, once you hit that three years of experience at a law firm, recruiters are going to start calling you for any and all kinds of positions. And you can kind of move back and forth and geographically and, you know, pretty much anything you want at that point. If you've, if you've made it for three years and you're doing well, you're going to be in demand and you can kind of figure yes. out what it is that you want to do and, and craft a position that will fit you. That's great. And, and so I think we have a good idea, I would say, what the, what the field looks like, uh, the career description and daily life. And I, I want to I use the rest of the time to really talk about transitioning because, as you know, we have a lot of PhDs and you've been there yourself who learned about nothing else but science and, you know, in many cases, just pushing a pipette, uh, have no idea how to transition into some of these other roles. Uh, so I think they have a, a clear idea of what this role would look like. But how did you get there? Maybe you could talk a little bit about your background. Like, why did you decide to leave academia? Uh, what were some of the obstacles you faced? And, and then how did you specifically, what steps did you take specifically to, to get into this field? Yeah. 
Um, so why did I leave first? I, I knew that I was never going to be a researcher as a career. Um, for me, the lack of correlation between hard work and usable results was really frustrating. And I, you know, some projects are like that. My project was a lot like that. So that was, it was pretty clear to me pretty early on that this was not going to be a good fit for me. Um, so I started pretty early to explore what else might be out there because my grad school, I'm sure like many, just didn't, my advisor anyway, didn't know. She had been a career scientist mm. and um, couldn't help me. But my grad school had a series, I think, which is much like what you're doing here, careers for PhDs outside of the academy. Oh, wow. so I went to all of those. <laughs> I went to every single one. And I, I you know, paid attention to career options that I identified with. And so they were, it turned out that most of those were to do with writing and thinking and analyzing science, but not really doing it. So things like technical writing, scientific writing, editing in journals, things mm. like that. There are also, you know, conversations with management consultants. I didn't like that. It wasn't necessarily going to be about science. Yes. But I knew that I wanted to keep my capital F science fresh. And so how do I, how would I do that? So then I started doing informational interviews and um, happened, there happened to be a patent, I think he's an attorney when I talked to him, um, the guy who had started as, started as a patent agent in one of the labs that I had rotated in prior to actually picking my PhD lab. And he had been a postdoc in that rotation lab and was now out being a patent attorney. And so I got connected to him, had a couple of really nice conversations. And he was very helpful, connected me to a couple people. And they connected me to a couple more people and on and on and on. Hmm. So, so I'd say probably over the course of my search, I probably talked to 50 people who were just informational interviews, not actual interviews. Wow, that's great. No, no, I think this is very important. You know, for those of you listening, we talk about the importance of networking and how it's the, you know, the number one thing you can do and how much is enough and getting past, you know, as a PhD, we think, well, I reached out to one person one time this week. Like I really put myself out yeah. there, but like you just said, 50 inter informational interviews, uh, finding out as much as you can about the different uh, positions. And then I really liked how you talk about the chain of events. Like you connected to a couple of people and then they connected you to a couple of other people. And, and really driving that process was, was helpful. Yeah. And it's scary. I mean, but the thing is, you get that first warm connection. And that person will only put you in touch with people who they know are nice. Hmm. And those people aren't going to take the call if they're going to be mean. They're just not. They'll just right. say no. And the people, the next person that you talk to is going to do the same thing. They're going to connect you to nice people. And then those people are going to connect you. So it's it's scary at first, but you actually pretty quickly I learned that I never ever had anybody be mean to me on the phone mm. on that kind of a call and it's because those people just are simply not going to take the call they're just yes. not going to do it so you kind of go in set up for success unless you're patently wasting their time that you're going to have a good conversation no no that's a good point and I think a lot of the fear and uncertainty comes in is like well what's going to happen on this call but like you just said and to re reiterate the biggest takeaway here is if, if they're taking a call uh, they are want to help you. It's like asking someone for a recommendation, right? If they say they're going to write a recommendation, uh, in most cases, it's it's going to be to your benefit. And in this case, uh, yeah. even more so because you're going to be on the phone there, like um, with them. So, yeah, that's a great point. So, okay, so so you're in this field, uh, and what 
what do you do? I mean, how do you stay in the field and be productive without having to, and be successful and keep moving forward without having to take, take the bar exam, uh, for example, like what, I guess what for you personally motivates you, where do you, where are you looking to go? Um, just so we can kind of see it through, through somebody's eyes personally. Um, so my career next steps you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not really sure right now. You know, this, this teaching gig was actually kind of a fluke and not very many people I would suppose who are listening would end up doing something like this. This was kind of a opportunity that presented itself that I couldn't say no to. Mm. But I think for most people in the field, you're going to either continue working at a firm or, or take a lateral move in-house somewhere. And those careers are just, I mean, you can either stay as a patent agent if your company or firm is going to pay for it. Sometimes especially firms will pay for you to go to law school. Then you can go to law school part time and keep working part time and oh, really? come okay. out with a JD, and then you can be a patent attorney. Wow, that's it's not. I wouldn't say that every firm would do that. I don't know of any companies that would do that. Although there, you know, there could be some. Sure. Um, but if you're doing a good job at a firm, they want you on the partnership track, and so the only way you can get there is to be an attorney. That's good to know. So, so I guess that's where where you would go and. If you know, go, returning back to the, tran, the transition part in the beginning, and getting a little bit more practical. So let's say you're applying for a scientific advisor or technical specialist position at a law firm, and you talked about being able to tell the story of why you're doing it, right? If you don't have that JD credential, um, even if they're going to go on and, and pay for your way to get a get a JD later, uh, what, what's the best strategy for like the PhDs listening in terms of justifying? the transition from academia into into this field as a patent agent or scientific advisor, technical specialist, you know, whatever the titles are. How would they ideally answer that question, or, or maybe how did you answer that question? I think the best answer is the genuine one, and so that's going to be different for everybody, obviously. For me, it was much the story that I've already shared, so I knew that I wanted to do science but not do it, um, and I was good at writing and, and analytical stuff, and so this seems like a good fit for me. And that's another thing, actually, that I was able to hone over all those informational interviews was to actually craft that story in a way that was compelling. Because those people will happily tell you, you know, they'll ask you, why do you want to do this? And then they'll happily tell you if you have a crappy story. I mean, they won't be mean about it, but they'll, sure. they'll, they'll like, help you figure out how to make it a better story than the one you just told them. That makes sense. I don't know. And I think I like that. I mean, really, it's just starting and talking with people live is kind of the best way to figure out how to tell your story. Because um, you get feedback, yeah. right? And I think that's the key yeah. takeaway there. Better than you just writing it on paper and and getting lost in your own head. And so that, that's yeah. That's and really I actually wouldn't recommend writing it on paper and then memorizing it and then reciting it because that's going to sound hmm. terrible. I mean, it's not going to be compelling in any way if it's a monologue. It's no, absolutely. Much more about being authentic. Yeah, and and. That, that's a great point. For those of you listening, we talked a lot about, you know, just transparency, authenticity, the same way if, if you're talking to a recruiter. I mean, don't try to say, well, don't try to pretend that you've had industry experience or pretend that you've had, you know, any kind of law experience. Just say that uh, you're looking to transition into this field um, because of X, Y, Z, even if it's because of a course you went to or things you've learned or wanting to stay close to science but not do science. Uh, I think that's great. You know, build a story around that. So great stuff, Karen. Thank you. Um, a few more questions in terms of the transitioning, and I, I want to, you know, stay practical, stay granular here. In terms of, a, let's say, a resume, you know, you've done your informational interviews, you networked, somebody wants to see your, your resume, what kind of transferable skills or individual, uh, you know, bullet points or results would you recommend highlighting on, 
on a resume for these positions. Um, oddly, your technical skills are going to matter a lot here. Not, 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 necessarily, not necessarily the fact that you can do 96 well PCR in 20 minutes, but <laughs> more along the lines of, you know, these are the kinds of um, things that I know about science and mm. how the, you know, sort of the granular stuff actually, because it's because so much of working on patent applications is about the technology. So you need to prove that you have a fundamental baseline knowledge of how PCR works or, you know, molecular biochemistry or wh whatever it is that your specialty area is. You know, for me it was yes. a combination of molecular biology and um, plant science. The, the first job I got, the, the sun and shine job, was working with a major agribusiness company. And so my plant research was critical, actually. That was the thing that got my resume looked at by the hiring partner. Thank you for joining us for another Industry Careers for PhDs podcast. If you're interested in attending one of these interviews live, or if you're interested in getting access to the full interview, including all of the background materials and show notes, go to cheekyscientist.com backslash association and learn how to become a associate. Uh, you can get on the wait list for the next association enrollment period there and learn full details about the program. It's a program specifically designed to help PhDs transition uh, into top industry positions. If you would like to see receive more of these interview highlights uh, via our podcast uh, sent directly to your email, go to cheekyscientist.com and email subscribe under where it says start here. If you haven't already, you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Um, until next week, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional.